I'm Ethan Fry, and welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie Podcast. We're recording this episode on October 19th, and I'm joined by uh, the editor of the Valley Indie, Eugene Driscoll. Hello. hello. Uh, oh, sorry, I stepped on your. I stepped, stepped on your on hello. My lines. Uh, that was Eugene. Uh, we're both reporters with ValleyIndie.org, a nonprofit online newspaper in Ansonia. Today, our guest is Teresa Conroy a Democrat seeking re-election in the state's General Assembly's 105th district, which covers Seymour, Beacon Falls, and a portion of West Derby. Ms. Conroy, welcome to the Valley Indy, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, let's get right to sort of our, our questions. Um, you know, on, on a national level, this uh, campaign season is like no other. A big portion of the... Uh, the country is angry at politicians. That's fueled Donald Trump's rise uh, as the Republican nominee. He has uh, support in the Valley, and I think in Seymour, uh, we've heard a lot of you know anyone but Hillary talk uh, from the Valley and in Seymour. And then on the state level, uh, Governor Malloy is is not a popular leader. It feels like there's a lot of anger out there. Uh, so, like, how do you how do you deal with that on the on the campaign trail when you're looking to be reelected as a Democrat? Sure, um, and those are both very good points. I want to say that you know a lot of times um, people are trying to tie me together with Governor Malloy, and I can say that that is not true at all. Um, I think I've stood up to him. I, I think that was very evident when we had the Griffin Hospital funding cuts that happened last year and. Um, I do want to thank Pat Charmel um, and Ken Roberts over at Griffin. They actually sat down with myself and Linda Gentile and went through how hospital funding is um, done and the money that they get from the state. If I didn't have that information from them to be able to go back and say to Governor Malloy, you can't be doing this, that was going to be about a $3 million um, cut to Griffin Hospital, which probably would have cut a lot of jobs, and who knows if it might have closed down our hospital. I was able to go back, um, interact with him, and say, you know, we need this funding. It's going to close up Derby. And I was successful with it. I got 98% of that money restored. Uh, there was about mm, $50,000, $60,000 that was not put back in for them. But the uh, hospital said they, they could absorb it, so I was happy with that. Then a few months later, Governor Malloy, with his executive power, was able to take that back out of the budget. At that point, I threw my hands up and I said, what am I doing here? I mean, I, I fought so hard to get this money back in, and he had um, the line authority to take it out. So I went right back at him, and we were able to get it back in. So I'm happy to say that, you know, there's times that Governor Loy, I agree with him. He's been um, very helpful in the opioid epidemic. He's put a lot of resources in it, so I work with them on that. But any time that I can't um, agree with what is happening to my, my district and my constituents, I have no problem going up after him. I'm an independent thinker, and I'll continue to do that um, when I'm reelected. Are you sensing in the electorate some of the anger that we uh, we referenced? I mean, it's, it's hard as reporters to know if we're, sure. we're just reflecting what we see on Facebook and then uh, you know, the rise of Donald Trump and some of the comments that we see uh, on our social media. Uh, but do, you, do you sense that? Is this campaign different? Uh, than your previous campaigns, do you feel? I don't, you know, there's two parts to that. One of them is, yes, we know that people don't like government employee. We know that. Um, but when, they're, when I'm out there door knocking and canvassing, people say that they know that I've been fighting hard for them. So it's a separate issue. Um, you know, the same thing with Donald Trump. You know, I have supporters that say, you are the only Democrat I'll ever vote for because I know you work so hard for us. Um, you'll see that when you go through my district. You'll see my lawn sign next to the lawn sign of Donald Trump. 
And people understand that I'm a Democrat, but they also know I actually work for everyone here. And I'd like to say that, you know, as a nurse, I never looked at a patient as being a Democrat, Republican, and unaffiliated. I took care of all my patients, and I do the same thing as in this role. What do you think it is about uh, Governor Malloy that people don't like? Why does it seem to be, I think 24% was the approval rating that the everyone... Quinnipiac, yeah, in June. Is it a personality uh, thing? What is it? A- you know, I would say the personality thing. You know, he really, um, there's some initiatives that he's tried that um, are good public policy. However, the way he presents them, um, he's pretty bristly when he does that. He doesn't have that connection where um, he makes it real to people. Okay. Ethan, moving on. Uh, Ethan just, did the, the majority. Just of by the, uh, just by way of introduction, you know, we wanted to start with you know uh, sort of you know what what people are talking about on the in the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. But just by way of background to people who who aren't familiar with you, uh, just tell us a little bit about your background. Like, are you a lifelong Seymour resident? Uh, what you do for a living, family, etc. Sure. Um, I like to tell people that I've lived in every one of these uh, three towns in my district. I was born at Griffin Hospital, so I was in Derby for a very short time. Um, I was raised in Seymour, went through the Seymour education system. I um, moved down to Beacon Falls for one year, and then I moved back up the road two houses away from where I grew up. So I'm pretty much a Seymour resident. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner right now. I retired from the VA hospital over in West Haven where I worked in a multitude of different roles, um, pretty much in the medical surgical field. I left there after being the uh, nurse manager on the busiest floor was a med surge um, telemetry floor. And the head nurses there were turning over every year because it was a rough floor. Um, I committed and I stayed in that role for four years. I was able to do a lot of systems changes on there, um, increase my patient satisfaction scores, my staff sa- satisfaction scores, retained staff. And I had over uh, 50 staff members. When I retired, I went to Middlesex Hospital for a year. That was um, the first magnet hospital in the state. That's a nursing magnet uh, hospital. So they have certain standards that they have to be- live up to. I chose to go there because um, I wanted to learn more about that whole system and how you can excel. I was a nurse manager there. Um, I had a $10 million budget, and I was very successful within keeping in my budget. I know some people say I'm not a small business owner. I had a $10 million budget. I know what it's like. I had, um, I had all the responsibilities of hiring people, firing people, ordering supplies. Uh, I was able to stay within my budget. And then what, that was right around 2007, 2008 when the uh, financial markets collapsed. And I remember our um, president of the hospital coming and saying, you need to cut your budgets by 10%. And this was before we started seeing all the, uh, the repercussions that we're seeing now. And when I looked at him, I said, how am I going to cut this busy floor 10%? And I was able to do that. And it took a lot of time. It took a lot of looking, drilling down into the uh, whole system cutting back on overtime, finding better ways to do things. And I was able to do that and, again, keep my patient satisfaction scores and my nursing satisfaction scores actually higher than they were. And uh, you've mentioned uh, twice uh, uh, areas where your opponents or whomever can hit you, You, tying you to Governor Malloy, saying you're not a uh, small business owner. Mm -hmm. Where do you hear these things? And what are are the other two or three things that they hit you on that you uh, address? Well, I know those are the two big things that I hear. And how does that get back to you? I'm just fascinated. Uh, you get word. You, you this is the valley. You know, people talk <laughs> here, and we know that. So it does come back to you. And, you know, there's always press out there. Um, so you do hear this. And, um, you know, we hear about things like fiscal responsibility. 
And when people say that to me, I say, listen, I'm a small homeowner. I have a very small cape. And in my own home, you know, I have to budget my, my own balance, budget my balance my own budget. Um, and we also know, though, there's times when things come up in your own personal life that are outside of the norm, and you have to go out and borrow. And sometimes that's how we have to do it in the state. Uh, as far as fiscal responsibility, you know, this last year we cut over $830 million out of the state budget. Not just cuts, but we did some structural changes in there, too, um, such as some pension reform for non-union employees. There's caps on there now. Uh, we looked at the health insurance policies for the state employees. They're paying more of a premium now for co-pays and their premium. Those types of structural changes will be helping out in the next biennium um, because we've already put those things in place. Same with some of the retirement factors. So there's work that's being done. People don't always hear about it. Um, but we do need to do a lot of structural overhaul in the state. And then in terms of uh, you, you represent Derby. Actually, my neighborhood, my part of mm -hmm. Derby where I live, you are my representative uh, right now in the state legislature. Uh, I've noticed, you know, in my own house, my, uh, the value of the house is, has gone down, but my taxes are, are going up. Or some of that, I, I mean, I put a new roof on my house, so some of that's on me. But, uh, you know, in, in my neighborhood, I'm on Hawthorne Avenue. Uh, you know, what are you going to do to, uh, I guess, in terms of economic development, it seems that... Uh, Derby doesn't seem to be able to sort of pull itself up and get uh, like manufacturing jobs to move in. Is that a thing of the past? Uh, you know, we, we it seems that jobs that we once had have just been replaced by you know retail and mm -hmm. low-paying uh, jobs. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's especially uh, noticeable in Derby. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, what, what what can you do to help economic development, or, or what have sure. you done? Sure, and manufacturing is not dead in Connecticut. Let me just put that out there now. Um, you know, I look at manufacturing. I, I, we're right down the, the neighborhood of Farrell's. Yeah, we, um, you, know, you look out our window and you can see the old factory. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Farrell's, they, they used to have the foundry right up the street. Um, personally, when I grew up, we had, you know family and you know grandparents, parents that worked in these factories, and it was pretty much a dirty job. Um, hard work, you know, we did have safety things in there, but it was hard work. Uh, for myself, when my two sons were growing up, I wanted them to get a college education. Was that the best choice for both of them? No, I don't think it was. I wish one went to a technical college or a high school. Um, since that time, I've been working with manufacturers, and I go out to different places, and when I'm out there, they're telling me they've never had so many jobs. And I know you might look skeptical. You don't have any look on your face right now, Eugene. But I was. I looked at them. I'm like, really? That's not what I'm hearing out there. And they said, business has never been better. Our problem is we don't have the skilled workforce that we can hire in here. So I've been working very closely with the technical high schools and the uh, technical colleges. So we have um, Naugatuck Valley Community College up in Waterbury. And we have Housatonic Community College in Bridgeport. Those are four of our community colleges that are now manufacturing centers. So people can go in there, get a degree, get a certificate into the jobs in manufacturing. Why isn't it happening? I don't mean to interrupt, but mm -hmm. why aren't there more, if, if that's out there, uh, why aren't more people taking advantage? Maybe they are. They I mean, are. And then that's what, you know, Platt Tech, um, Dave Tuttle from SEMA runs the program over there at Platt Tech. So I work with them closely. Um, this past year, I was able to have Senator Murphy come down because he hadn't seen Platt Tech. And when I go there, I'm just amazed what these kids are doing. I mean, it is amazing. And I said to Dave one day, how many kids do you graduate? And he said 20. He said about 17 go right out into the field, and they're starting off with good-paying jobs. There's one student 
At 22, he bought a house. So these are good paying jobs. A couple go on for engineering degrees and somebody will go into the military. So I asked him that. I said, you know, you have 20 um, people graduating. How many could you graduate every year and get them a job? And he said, 60 every year, no problem. So the jobs are there. Now we need to, me knowing that information, I take back to back up to Hartford and say, we have to expand these these programs. Um, some of the problems when you look at it, there's long waiting lists for kids that are they're eligible to go into these programs, but there's not enough seats. So we also know on a downside, these kids might not go to college or they go to college, maybe flounder because that's not what they want, come out with student debt, and they're not helping anyone out there or themselves. So And they're leaving Connecticut. We've seen the data, the 18 to 34. Sure, they're, and that is true. Exactly. And uh, So let it, me just ask you then, sure. there was, and it really touched a nerve uh, in the Valley, that idea to possibly close to uh, tech schools. Mm. It was like a raw nerve. I know uh, everybody, every, every uh, politician in the Valley uh, issued a statement about mm-hmm. it, and people were shocked, angry, because it, you know, it's, what we need in the valley. What's the status of, of that issue? Well, that was, I believe, um, you know, Governor Malloy had put out there about cutting um, budgets 10%, and this is what they came back with, was that they would have to cut two schools. Um, that will no, not go anywhere. As I said, you know, I'm working to increase these seats in these schools because, you know, we have other schools out there. We have the magnet schools that are doing great. We have charter schools. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of those. I think they take a lot of money away from our local community schools. Um, but as far as that little piece of cutting out two schools, that I don't think that would ever happen. Yeah, that seemed to be like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like every year at, at budget season locally, um, you know, a lot of lo- the local school districts will say that they need more money than like the cities are willing to allot. And then they'll say, oh, we'll have to cut X, Y, and Z. And like X, Y, and Z are often like the most, you know beloved things that you know sure so you go to those emotional like a, strings that like sort of a scare tactic by the state board of ed i guess yeah. or say you know this is this is hey you cut our budget this is you're going to lose this you know sometimes you wonder those things um i i am a politician i guess now i've been in there six years but um sometimes you wonder when those things come out if that's what it's all about is a little scare tactic to get it going um i'm not sure but I, I can tell you that I am there to support those technical schools. And then your your opponent in this race uh, issued a statement or a press release saying that, well, this is a result of uh, the Democrats and Governor Malloy's bad fiscal management of the state that puts us uh, in these positions. How would you respond to that? Well, I don't think it's bad fiscal um, when you're saying responsibility. You know, like I said, we've done structural changes. When we got hit with this financial collapse, it really hurt Connecticut bad. Uh, we... We had a lot of our revenues go down, um, our market, our housing. We all know our houses, you know, the market value has gone down. Before we would get money in from all those, you know, real estate transactions. Uh, we know our casinos, we used to get a lot of money from them. The revenue coming in from there is also down. So we need to make sure that we're not counting on these revenue streams, but we really need to be um, increasing that economic basis. You know, like I was talking about the manufacturing um, the jobs that we do here in Connecticut aren't the ones that can be outsourced to places like China. We have precision manufacturing um, that no one else can do. Actually, one of the students from um, Platt Tech, he had, I knew him, he did an internship down at Bridgefort Fittings, um, and this summer I heard that he was moving to Florida. And my reaction was, oh God, you know, we're losing somebody in that age group. And they, I said, why isn't he going? And they said, well, it's a girlfriend. Okay, well. We know that trumps everything. Um, 
But then I was surprised. A month later, I was at an event, and he was there. And I said to him, Diego, when are you going to Florida? And he says, oh, I went. I said, you went? He goes, yeah, I was down there for about a month. He said, the factory I was in was nothing like we do up here in Connecticut. He says, you might have OSHA throughout the country. He said, the safety precautions weren't there. The quality of the work that they were putting out was not like anything we can do in Connecticut. I made the decision to come back here. Hmm. Did his girlfriend come back with him? He I didn't hope. say that. Oh, yeah. well, that's, I, I hope. Let's hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Go. Yeah. Uh, it, like the 105th, uh, 105th district, I should say, it, like I think it's the closest thing the Valley has had recently to like a, a swing seat, for lack of a better term. It really is uh, fascinating. You won it in 08. Uh, Len Green uh, won it in 2010. <laughs> you won it back from him in a narrow 2012 race. Uh, that was set up for a rematch in 2014, but he withdrew because of new work responsibilities. And you, you easily defeated, I think, a, a relative newcomer. Uh, this year, the Republicans have nominated uh, Nicole Clarides Dietria, a member of the Seymour Board of Selectmen, who got more votes than any of the other selectmen uh, did during the 2015 elections. Uh, is the GOP, you know, targeting your seat? Is the state GOP targeting your seat? Are you confident of? Uh, uh, winning this year and and why why sure if so yeah the voters minds there they they, they literally go uh, back and forth uh, how do you navigate that and I don't mean to interrupt Ethan's question but that's an add-on to Ethan's question yeah um, well you know some of my colleagues will say boy you never get your break because I always have a tough race to go through and as you know in Seymour um, it's all Republican majority uh, both our um, board of selectmen and also our um, state senators are both Republican. I'm pretty much the lone um, person, Democrat, out there in this seat. Um, but I think the, the big challenges that I have in, in doing this is, you know, getting my message out there. People have seen what I've done for my district. And I keep having people say, you know what, you're the only Democrat I'm ever going to vote for. So it's good. Um, going out canvassing, I've canvassed my whole district. And I can happily say I've never gotten such a great response out on the doors. Because although it's a difficult position, people know where I'm at. I'll get emails and I'll respond to anyone, um, even those nasty emails, unless they're right, uh, really, uh, you know, those that, you know. <laughs> you got to ignore the trolls. That's probably like one or two. Okay. Um, but I always go back and respond to people about my decision and how I come to my, my decisions making a vote. And I've had people write back and forth to me. And one guy, when I actually met him, he said, you know, by this time, you must have figured out I'm a Republican. He said, but you have earned my support because I know you think about it. You do your research and you come to a conclusion. It might not be the one that I agree with, but I know that you, you're not just pushing a button up there, but you're actually looking out for the best ways to help our um, district. Now, yeah, and do you uh, does the do, do the Democrats on the state level uh, are, they, do, are they doing any polling in your district? Uh, like, do you have any sense of where the people are compared to your previous? Maybe you wouldn't share that, but I'm just fascinated to see how much of it, uh, it does that does that go on, or is it all just you? They do a really little. Face to face? They do a little bit of it, but I got to be honest, it's pretty much just my contacts and what I'm getting. Um, it's not like the national polling where you know we're getting those polls all the time. It doesn't really happen at this level. Um, I always run like I'm losing, because that's how you know you feel. You need to run like you're you're losing, and you have to get your message out there. Um, I did have that loss for re-election my first time out. Uh, that was kind of a hard hit because people in my district thought that I was going to win four to one, and that's what I was hearing. Um, 
it's not a good place to be in when you're hearing numbers like that. I'd rather hear that I'm not winning and work harder. Um, and, you know, I sat back and when I, when I lost that time and I said, well, maybe politics isn't for me. And I took a little time to sit back and see what my, my predecessor did. And I came to the conclusion of, no, I need to be back there because I don't believe anybody fights as hard or as, as passionate about this job as I am. Um, there's many other things I could be doing out there in, in the real world, but I believe this is my calling. You know, I've been a, a servant all my life in, in nursing, so uh, I have a strong family sense of community. My, you know, ancestors came here in the 1800s, and they've always been involved in politics. I never thought I'd be in politics, honestly. Um, I was a federal employee. You can't run for office when you're a federal employee. But I did lots of things in my town. I was, you know, Pumpkin Festival. I was a president of that, PTA. I was on the Zoning Board of Appeals for about 14 years. So I was very active in my community. Um, but it wasn't until I did an internship up in Hartford when I was going back for my bachelor's degree that I learned about this role. And I said, if I ever did run for an office, this is what I wanted. And after I retired, I ran and I was successful. Do you want to ask about uh, uh, Sikorsky? You have a question there. Sikorsky, I thought was interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the, recently the General Assembly held a special session where lawmakers r overwhelmingly uh, ratified a $220 million, quote-unquote, incentive to keep Sikorsky headquartered in Connecticut. Uh, strong bipartisan support. I think there was one no vote in the Senate. I'm not I'm not positive what the House vote was. Um, but it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Uh how is that not sort of like corporate welfare or crony capitalism? Why is, it, why is that a good thing, I guess? Well, there's two parts of that. When you're talking about crony capitalism, you know, in corporate welfare, um, that's happening all throughout this country. And we even saw that when uh, GE moved up to Boston. You know, um, Boston gave them, I believe, $140 million. And they're still hearing up in Boston, if you read any of those papers, that now they want, you know, a helipad and they want this and that from the state. Um, until we change things, I think, on a national level, I think it's going to continue to happen. Now, Sikorsky's um, incentives were an investment. We know that they're going to be here now till at least 2032. Um, we can look at it structurally going out that we can plan for the workforce. Um, it, wasn't a, it was a good deal overall. We have about 700 people directly employed at Sikorsky's in my district. That's not including all these other little, you know, manufacturing jobs that help feed into it. I was going to say you don't represent the, that area specifically, but mm. it's, it's, exactly. it's a lifeblood right. of the and valley. I, and we know that, you know, and just yeah. those 700. But then, yeah. you, know, you know, those people work there. They come back. They're spending their money in their economy in our own town. So um, it was an investment. Um, I don't agree when it's things like Bridgewater that we gave them. They're a hedge fund. They the, um, the governor gave them money to stay here. That one I didn't approve of. I think for the uh, bang for the buck that you would have gotten out of that for our economy wasn't worth it. But for the Sikorsky deal, I think it was um, something that we needed to do. We'll be making, you know, um, they're t projecting about 200 new helicopters there. So um, it's here for to say. Like McGovern, the governor's spoken about, the, I think he calls it the new economic reality. Um, and is it just the case now where you have like these giant corporations where there's a, a ripple effect if they if they leave um, where you just have to sort of grin and bear it and say, like, what, what do we what do we have to do to keep you here? Is that 
is that basically, you, you know, you said, you know, until things change, like what, what's the, right. the long-term view, I guess. Right. And, and, you know, we've been seeing other companies just come in in the last couple of um, weeks, like Henkel and Dial. Um, so they are coming here. You know, a few things. You, we might be low on some of our reports in the business world. However, you offset that with our quality of life, our educational systems. Um, that's a lot of the reasons why people stay here and why we're such a good state. Um, when you go down to those places where have, you know, maybe down to North Carolina and you're paying lower taxes, well, we also see what their educational systems are like. And we want to make sure that we're having, you know, good school systems here. And it doesn't, it's not cheap. We have to pay for that. Speaking of, this is just a pet issue of mine that I just thought of, but like speaking of like the, the flight to places down south, like North Carolina and stuff, a lot of that, you know, the people who are uh, state employees who, you know, work for, for years and years in the state and now get pensions, taxpayer funded pensions, uh, they're, you know, moving to Florida, North Carolina, places like that, and now not paying taxes. Um, is that like, does that, I mean, that sort of just rubs me the wrong way personally. Like, is there anything that, you know, is that just basically that, that's the way things happen? Well, the way the cookie crumbles? <laughs> Like, I think that's hard it, because if yeah. you weren't a state employee and you had a retirement and wanted to move, there'd be no strings attached to that. Um, I think these people have, you know, earned their retirement. Um, do I agree with it sometimes? No, you know, I have, I know people that, you know, have residency in Florida. They're there for the requisite 181 days or whatever that is. And then they're up here in the, uh, in Connecticut enjoying the other three seasons. A lot of these people can afford to go there. And they're not paying their fair share to help us offset this whole budget that we have to do. They're not paying the taxes here, but they're reaping the benefits of of this this state for three you know three seasons that they like to be here. Um, do I think it's fair? Honestly, I don't. Uh, but I'm not going to begrudge them for being able to do that. And if voters send you back to Hartford for another term, mm -hmm. what are some of your uh, specific goals uh, coming up? Okay. Well, I have um, a couple of big things I'm very passionate about, as you probably know, is the opioid epidemic in the state. Um, I really need to get back to Hartford to continue to work on that. We had about 729 deaths in Connecticut last year. Um, overall in the nation, we for the amount of uh, people that are dying, it's like a plane going down every single day in the country. Now, if a plane was going down every day in this country, I think they'd ground all the planes. They'd find a fix to it right away um, so it wouldn't continue to happen. I'm not seeing that with this epidemic that we're seeing. Um, we had the 729 deaths last year. It's project projected to be 888 this year. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on there. We've passed some legislation in the past few years. Um, it's been good legislation, uh, including Narcan, where the pharmacist, it's the only medication that they can prescribe. Um, so Seabridge Pharmacy, I work with closely, and um, Beacon Falls Pharmacy to make sure that they had it in there. If you have a loved one or you're concerned about a friend, you can go in there, talk to the pharmacist, and um, they'll dispense that to you. They'll give you instructions and some other resources that you can have. Last summer, um, the Waterbury Fire Department came to me. They had started carrying Narcan um, on their vehicles. And in three short months, they had given it about 300 times. That was real data for me, because a lot of times data comes in way too slow. It's not current. Years later. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, not doing any yeah, good. Yeah. This was real-time stuff. Um, so they also had the data of where people were coming from. So people think it's an inner-city problem. It's not. 
Um, but they were having data from people from Darien, Ridgefield, all these very wealthy towns. But the, when they come to purchase it, they use it and they overdose. That was very instrumental in me being able to do legislation this past year to have all first responders um, carry the Narcan. And in Seymour, just a couple of weeks ago, the um, police force just saved someone with that. You know, um, I just got some data this, this past week that Seymour's in, 25, in the top 25% of overdoses, which hmm. means we had five last year. Um, it doesn't mean that the person, like I said, resides there. It could have happened there. And I've also heard, I was on an insurance forum this past week. For every one of these overdoses, there's 150 people that are addicted. So it's even bigger than we think. When I go door knocking and I talk to people about this, I can always tell on their face, their eyes kind of, all of a sudden it's like clicks with them. And I'll even say to them, you know someone, and they will. And they tell me their stories, and they're very heartbreaking. These are not people that, you know, everyone thinks it's an alleyway drug. These are people that are functioning out, and they're our neighbors. They're social workers. They're nurses. Um, they're attorneys. They're out there. And my biggest issue that I want to do is do prevention. So this year we did some things to limit first-time um, opioid prescribing. So if you go in and you have a procedure, you can't have any more than seven days. Now, there's a carve-out for people that need to have opioids that it's in there. It just has to be documented correctly. Um, because if we don't stop overprescribing in the beginning, this is where people get hooked on it. Another part was the prescript prescription drug monitoring program. That's a statewide program, and most states have those. Uh, if I go to prescribe for you, and I can, I can prescribe narcotics, so I am into the system. Um, I look, if I'm prescribing more than three days, I'm going to look at Eugene, I'm going to pull you up in your, this database, and I'm going to say, hmm, you went to Dr. Ethan last week and got this, and then Dr. X the week before. That's the time for the doctors or the practitioner to have that conversation with you to, to identify early intervention. Um, before we have somebody, you know, who is an addict, what we're finding is um, people... You know, when it is identified, um, previously they would be cut off from their prescriptions, and then they turn to the streets to go buy it. So for a milligram of, say, Percocet, which are 40 milligrams, um, you would go out and buy it for $40. It's dollar dollar a milligram. You can't do that for too long before you have no more financial resources. Mm -hmm. And that's where we find that heroin is so cheap. It's about $5 a bag. And uh, once, you once you go on to heroin, it's pretty bad. People tell me it's you can never get that first high, um, and they keep chasing it. Once you are hooked on it, um, treatment's very hard to get. And I'm seeing that in the insurance industry. We need to make sure that it's treated just like any other mental medi medical illness. Um, and when I say that, people say, well, they made that choice. Well, I'm hearing like five out of six of these people that are, are addicted started with a back injury. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier if you have back injury to go on something like a Percocet or an Oxycontin. Um, it costs more to go to physical therapy a few times a week. We need to focus on those other alternative therapies to help people get better and, and get off the medication and be more productive. So we're looking at doing things like that, working with the insurance industry. Um, right now, recovery I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at a recovery high school to have in Connecticut. When I say that, there's 36 recovery high schools in the state of, in the country. Massachusetts has five. Uh, they have 200 seats available for capacity, and they're currently at 100. 
I went up and toured there about three weeks ago and saw what this program was like. Um, last week I had a forum up at the legislative office building. I had about 50 stakeholders come to that. There's a need for it. So just to back up what Recovery High School is, um, when kids have any type of addiction from alcohol to heroin or any other substance, they go into their treatment program, say 30 to 60 days, uh, and when they come out, they're sent back into the school system. Now, I'm all about inclusion in school systems, except for this one case, because we all know that's where the alcohol and drugs are, are prevalent. They're very easily you know, accessible to get there. And the recovery rate for these kids that go back into these settings is very poor. Um, recovery high schools are usually small, like 25, 50 kids. Um, it actually started out in Houston, um, which is surprising, but that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the premise is they, they get their high school diploma through here, but they also um, have the substance abuse counselors. They have their peer support in there so that they can make it and have a chance to succeed in Yeah, life. is there any data? Because eventually you got to go back out into the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any data that they, they have long-term sobriety in a situation like that, or is it too new? Or? It, it is fairly new. Um, actually, we did a screening of the movie Generation Found with um, Alliance for Prevention and Wellness, also known as formerly known as VSAC. Oh, wow. Good yes. job. Yes, they did that. Well, I work very closely with Pam Waddy, and she's great, um, up at the Seymour uh, Theaters uh, last month. And that really told the story of it. It is fairly new. Um, when I had the forum this past week, we broke off into three work groups uh, to have people go out there and get me back more information. One of the things, you know, it's cost doing a school like this. But also these kids are going to be, yes. Well, yeah, I was going to just, uh, because, I mean, obviously you're very passionate about, about this topic and it's a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And we, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Irish Catholic from a, from a family of cops. I have some uh, experience with alcoholism, let's say. But when you go door to door, though, I mean, h- how do you fund any of that? And aren't people saying, Teresa, we, we need jobs here in the Valley. Mm-hmm. Like, we got to take care of this opi- opioid, but mm-hmm. I want to hear you... Uh, uh, talk about uh, f- for a while about what you're going to do to help the economy here. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any fear that you're you're weighing that issue more than the others? Not at all. Not at all. And how do we pay I for touch any on of all of them? How, how do you pay for any of that uh, stuff sure. we're talking about? And just going back to that recovery high school, that's one of the things we're looking at right now is return on investment. Because if you're paying for rehab over and over and over and hospitalizations, that's costing a lot more than keeping people clean. Can't, so, can't some of the costs come from? Uh, you know, we, 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 on the one hand, we have this, it seems like a concession that opioid and heroin addiction are, are a, a, an epidemic level problem. But then on the other hand, uh, you know, we, as, as a society, we're continuing this uh, policy of trying to interdict the, you know, trying to, you know, seize those drugs. Uh, they're illegal. Um, and th- that clearly has not worked for several decades. I mean, th- it's it's just hasn't worked. That's mm. obvious. So um, why not take some of the money that we're paying to do that and and put it into more uh, you know more of the things that that you're talking about? Shouldn't we decriminalize, for example? It, that's a good point. Um, part of that return on investment is the jail time. You know, when people are finding, you know, they're funding. Um, these habits by going and doing a lot of petty thefts um, just to fund it, and then they wind up in our jail system. And we know that 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 costs a lot more than anything we could be doing on the recovery end. So um, that's something we're also looking at. You know, they did do things 
or we did up in Hartford, um, such as decriminalizing certain amounts of, you know, marijuana. Um, Those things are important because we don't want our our jail systems to be our mental health facilities. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're really finding is happening now. And what, and I've asked you this before, I think, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, personally, it makes me sick. You watch TV, we get, we're, we're, there's constant commercials for drugs on TV Mm -hmm. all the time. I mean, you take a pill, whatever ails you, and it's just, I don't remember seeing that as a, as a kid, but it's all over the place now. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't, don't these companies that make these drugs have any responsibility maybe to fund cleaning up the mess they've created? Absolutely. That's where I'm working at in another part. Um, yeah, because they, they have a part in this, and it's a billion-dollar industry. Um, they need to be doing more of it out there. Um, you know, some people have even said to me, well, maybe it's time to sue them. To have them do it like with tobacco uh, funding that we got, mm. that settlement, that goes back into um, programs for smoking cessation and other things. Um, maybe it's time that we have to do that. But, you know, honestly, I'd rather work with the industry first before we have to take such drastic measures and have them come to the table and to be able to support these programs. Okay. Uh, let's. Do you mind if we change gears for a second back to uh, uh, the budget? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like every year the General Assembly votes on a budget, but then has to do all this last-minute uh, scrambling uh, when the spending plan's revenue or the projections come up way short or disputed, or there's a million news stories that I can't even follow what the reporters are talking about. It seems like you need a degree in, in, in budget-making and government talk just to follow the stories uh, on them. Uh, what can be done to change that? What systemic changes? That we keep hearing systemic changes need to be made. Structural. Structural yeah, changes. Yeah. And, and I have a hard time following, well, what's the problem? And, and why is it seemingly such a frustrating mess uh, every year? You know, I think when it first started, people didn't think it was going to continue to be as bad as, as it is. Um, and that's why structural changes are happening now. Um, I know, you know, out there, they'll say, well, the Republican balance budget was the better budget. You know, we were handed a budget by Governor Malloy. Um, that's how it happens. That's the process. We get the budget in the beginning of the session, and then we have all our hearings, the appropriations and finance hearings, um, and go through that. The end budget that we approved was a drastically different one than Governor Malloy handed us. His would have really done a lot more harm. And we were able to restore a lot of those um, cuts that he had to make it uh, a better budget. Now, I also hear that the Republicans had the best budget out there. Well, I got to be honest with you. That Republican budget was never called, and we never saw that. Now, we debated that on the budget for over six hours. And during that time, um, the process is, you know, amendments can be made at any time to the budget. There was this Republican budget that we kept hearing about. It was never called as an amendment. So it was never brought before us to vote on. Um, so you could say our budget was better. But when you look at that parts of that budget, um, there was things in there about cutting our uh, public university systems. You know, that's a, that's a big part nobody wanted to touch. Um, doing things like getting rid of our small business or making cuts to our small business express program. That's actually a program that's been very successful in Connecticut. Um, manufacturers have told me that when the financial markets changed, they couldn't go out and get money from banks to expand. This Small Business Express was actually able to give them those loans to be able to go out and buy that new piece of um, equipment and hire more people on. So those things are pretty sacred to 
to people and especially to me, especially when we're talking about manufacturing, we need to have those programs in there. So, you know, it's not an easy um, process, the budget. You know, we, we know it isn't. Um, I did vote on that budget two years ago. And people say that to me, well, you know, you voted for the budget. Well, To raise taxes, that's what people say. Yeah, well, that raised taxes, and I, it's got to be clear. When we're talking about income tax, that was for people making over $500,000. And I believe in my district I might have maybe two or three people that do that. Um, but that, that part over 500000 aren't paying the same amount that I am at my tax bracket. So it was. Teresa, please don't put my salary out there. The I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and usually with those. <laughs> wait, wait. We, I interrupted. Were you done with your. your... Okay, go ahead. Well, and I was just going to say, wait, and, and with those tax brackets, it's not, you know, a person making $500,000 or more gets taxed more, but I think that's only on the income once you reach 500000 you know, $499,999 and under. Right. It's still the lower exactly the, up to that amount. Thank you for clarifying that. You're absolutely so correct. Millionaires don't cry poor around here. Mm. Let's. I, I wanted to ask you again. We might have done it already, but uh, just to bring it to. I mean, we're not state reporters. We don't cover state government, as you can probably tell by our line of questions. But we do cover uh, on the local level. And uh, what can you do? And maybe this isn't even uh, part of your role. But we have Kurt Miller in here, the first selectman of Seymour, all the time. And then we'll have him take questions from the audience live, call-ins on Facebook Live or whatever. And it's always, you know, Tritown Plaza, what's going on with, uh, you know, this economic development thing? Uh, what's going on? Well, you name your property. Seymour Lumber. Seymour Lumber. Who's a tonic? Who's a tonic? Who's a tonic? Yeah. Who's a tonic? Wire. 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 Yeah, 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 wire. Mix those yeah, up. yeah. Yeah, because the, Derby has the similar set of uh, problem Sonia, properties, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What role does a state lawmaker play in breathing new life into some of these properties, whether they're the former factories or brownfield properties? Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you work with uh, Miller? Because sometimes it seems, uh, and I don't mean Seymour in general, it just seems there's like there's stagnation. Because we've been around since 2009, and the same properties are the same mm -hmm. properties, and, they, and they're, they set up different task force, and they, and they pay for different studies, and it seems like these consultants and architects and lawyers all make a yeah, lot of money. Yeah, it's definitely a valley-wide And then it just still, problem. the property still never goes anywhere. Mm -hmm. what, what can you do to change that? There, there are things that are going on, and when you're talking even Housatonic Wire, you know, that site was cleaned up. Um, the, the owner of the property now is um, actively working with a potential buyer for the property. Um, and I believe the town and myself would like to see it used as a multi-district you know, res district where you'd have some shopping there, maybe some housing there. It's a beautiful parcel. If you've never been there, you need to go look at it. Right, yeah, yeah. With it's the waterfall. The waterfalls yeah, really down is, there. Yeah. It really is a beautiful piece of property. Um, another part in, in, you know, I keep talking about transit-oriented development. And we're perfectly positioned for that in the valley. We have the train going through. You could literally hear the train going right there. through earlier in exactly. this Exactly. You know, when I grew yeah. up, it was like, oh, we have a train going through our town. It wasn't very nice. Um, now I find out how that really can impact our growth. Uh, just talking about the train, we did a study in 2010 about increasing access on it. So we all know that the Waterbury Branch Line only has one track. It is very frustrating. Just, just, here's a quick story. Not that uh, I, I wanted to hire a freelancer for uh, November mm. 8th, actually, to help cover the Seymour election that you're uh, participating in. And uh, the freelancer doesn't have a car, lives in Bridgeport. And to get this person from Bridgeport 
to Ansonia to the Seymour train no. station. He'd have to leave now, mm. essentially. But right. anyway, so right. that that's the challenge. That is a challenge. So we've been, you know, um, I, I work with the council, uh, the railroad council on this. Um, we need to expand the service on that line. And it's not a reliable service. It's, you know, diesel run. It's... So it's a whole different set of trains we have. Um, so we're looking at having two sidings on this train track, uh, one in Derby, one in Beacon Falls. So a siding is where a train can pull over, the other one goes by. So we can increase more um, frequent service on there. We need to make sure that it's more reliable. And I also hear complaints about the cleanliness that we're working mm-hmm. on because they, they need to be maintained correctly. Um, we also, when we are looking at that, par- that part of the train, um, we have train stops in each of my towns, but over behind Stop and Shop in Seymour, between Route 67 and 42 in Beacon Falls, there's about 220 acres of property that pretty much the Haynes com- company owns, and they've talked about doing a, a development back there. Now that they're done with their Oxford plans, um, I'm hoping this will come to fruition soon. We need to have a roadway put between 67 and 42 to develop this area. For that to happen, for Absolutely. the to do their thing. Yes, and they've had some you know, rough, rough ideas of what they want to do, and it would be a mixed use where there'll be residential, shopping, uh, professional buildings, and maybe a couple of box stores there. Um, they've already um, verbally committed to having, um, giving the land along the, the river for Greenway Trail so we could hook that up. So there are plans there, but we need to look for the funding for that roadway. I believe that's going to cost... At least $11, $12 million. Um, it doesn't mean that it has to be all on the state or on the local or the private person. We need to come up with a private partnership with the, the public um, to make this happen. Because in this region, that's probably our best option for expansion. Um, Tritown Plaza, you know, I, I don't even like to talk about that place anymore, honestly, because I think on a municipal every two years, this year it's not a hot button um, topic Next year it will be again. Who's going to get somebody in there? I've I've met with the, the owner of the per- parcel. Um, I've heard his stories. And honestly, I don't think anything's going forward with that place right now. It's out of government hands at this point. It's, it is. It's not, it is. And, and just getting back to that uh, former Haynes property and this public uh, partnership, would that be like a, a development authority of some kind? How does that? No, it would be getting the, funding, as a, as the funding for the roadway to go through there. Everybody kicks in, basically. Yeah, I think that's the only way we're going to be able to do that. And um, like I said, Oxford, where you know they just had that quarry rock uh, right, just yeah, finished. Yeah. I'm hoping that now we can start pursuing this more. Okay, I just said, did you have another? I, I just I had a question, but it but it it just completely slipped my mind. So I might have to edit this awkward part uh, out of the the podcast. But uh, what do you do now for the next the, the election? I mean, I don't know what what's today's date. It's October. 20 days. 19th? So yeah, yeah. It's 20, 20 days. Yeah, right? yeah, so by the time this, uh, I don't know when exactly we'll get this online, sooner rather than later. But what happens in the last, like, final days of the election? What do you do? Uh, what happens? I keep doing what I've been doing. I keep going out there, meeting with constituents, hearing what their concerns are, what they'd like me to do, um, and asking for their support. Because I have a lot of initiative that we didn't even talk about today that, you know, I want to move forward on. Uh, you know, people... I didn't realize all this when I got to Hartford about actually how your status works. Um, when you go to Hartford your first time, you're a freshman. And just like when you're in high school or college, you're a freshman and you don't have a lot of clout. As you have successive turns there, um, you begin to have uh, more authority to be able to instrument, you know, have implement programs out there. Um, and right now I'm in a very good position for my district. 
you know, I've been successful. When I went to Hartford the first time, I said, we keep sending taxes up to Hartford. We keep doing that, but we don't get much back. And that was something that I really um, was committed to, was bringing back money here. And I know for the six years that I've been there, I've brought back at least $6 million um, for projects in this district. What are some of those projects? Some of those was, um, were the Chatfield Lepresti School, when we, we did that. Um, that was during my first term. Um, the Seymour High School athletic field. So, you know, some people say, well, that's turf field and bleachers. You know, part of that, I met with Board of Ed and the um, superintendent of schools and the town. Um, the town of Seymour had been fined or cited by the civil rights for handicap accessibility. And back then, um, local leadership told me it was going to cost about $4 million in upgrades to everything. By doing this project, we had you know handicap-accessible bleachers, the walkway going up there now. That's starting to remedy some of those action items that were in, um, in this report that they got. So they can show that they're making progress towards it. So it actually helps the town out. Um, the Seymour softball field, we just really um, had the grand opening of it last week. Seymour softball, you know, we, we got the football field, pretty much boys. The softball's for the girls. The girls have been state champions time and time again. You know, I always say this is my uh, jail diversion program in the Valley. Mm. When you look at, you know, cities, you know, they get a lot of jail diversions. These sports, we know this is the key in, in the Valley. Um, just recently, um, Derby came to me, oh, I want to say almost two years ago, and they wanted the upgrades for their athletic complex. Um, and initially, it came in about $4.9 million. That we could not do. So we were successful in getting just, I think it was $2.99 million last month for them. That's been a project that's been going ongoing for you know, a couple of years, but it finally came through. Um, we had the Veterans Elevator down in Seymour. Now, that's a small project, $98,000. That's the VFW? The, the American Legion. I'm sorry. American Legion. Gotcha. Um, their hall is on the second floor, and many of their you know, members are elderly. Um, this is a, a lift, so it'll have a wheelchair, and a person can get into it and bring them up. So, you know, the American Legion in Seymour it, it expands out all through the valley. They, you know, go to the, the funerals, and they put on different programs throughout the uh, the district that it's imperative that we keep them strong in their group. Um, we just had, you know, Beacon Falls. There's uh, Riverbend Park, and I'm not sure if, you know, I know you don't cover Beacon Falls, and I really wish you would. Hey, we need some of that grant money. All right. Beacon Falls, Riverbend Park is right on the river, uh, and they had a, a small section there, um, and they asked me, well, actually, I was on an email thread. And they were talking about getting the state property from DOT and DEP. And it was just over a quarter of an acre. And I looked at it and I said, hmm, this is something I should do. We have a conveyance bill that we do up there. So I jumped on it, uh, was able to do the legislation so that the town did not have to purchase the land. They had the land. And I was just over there this past week. This park is beautiful. I mean, it's in a beautiful location right on the river. Uh, if anyone hasn't been there, they really should take a ride up there. Uh, Riverbend Park, you know, we've done... Other things like Beacon Falls just has um, received $500,000 to redo West Road that goes down onto 67 into Oxford. Um, there's, oh, I can keep on going, but there's lots of things I'm bringing back that are priorities for my area. Right now we're working on an application for um, a daycare, senior daycare center in Seymour um, through TEAM. 
and that's the Whole Valley Delegation, team did a study where there's a need for adult daycare. So that's allowing people to stay in their homes with their family. Um, but when you know if I'm taking care of my parents, if I go to work, there's a place for them to go. Mm-hmm. So we do have an application in there now. Where does um, that application go to? Where does that go in the state? It's actually going to the Bond Commission. Okay. And it will take... Um, It'll probably take a year or two before that happens. Uh, all of the Valley delegation signed on to, in support of it. There is a need for it, and team did a great job in, in presenting that need. And, and the Bond Commission in general, you know, when we post all those stories there, it, you can predict the comments. There will be you know, 99 comments saying, yay, uh, like this Derby mm-hmm. athletic field. So the response was really positive. But then there's that one or two that'll say, Hey, you know, I thought I thought the states broke, and here we are borrowing money and doing these projects mm-hmm. in an election year, uh, and, they, and, and it's characterized as pandering. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? I mean, you've sort of responded to it by saying, I mean, these are how the projects are needed. But but now that I ask you formally, sure. how do you respond to someone that says, well, that's just poor? Yeah, and and it's you know, bonding's been a part of the budget forever. That's just another part of even like you were doing your own household budget um, for those long-term projects. Um, I believe we are looking for a little structural change in that now. We're going to make it more for economic development. If we're going to be going out bonding, we really want to have that impact on our um, economic development. And I will be supporting that. So there's, you know, when you're talking like structural, that's something that I think we okay. need to be doing. So as opposed, because it seems like all the towns get money. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I've ever worked, New York State, too. Oh, yeah, and it, decorative it seems, lighting. Yeah. Everybody gets money for decorative lighting, but it does that really do And there's a certain amount of dissonance even from elected officials where, you know, if, if nobody wants to be, you know, a tax and spend person, mm-hmm. but then... Uh, Except, you know, when you, you, you know, you get a big million dollar check for your district, you're going to send out a press release saying how great that is, you know, you know, but then, you know, election budget time comes and you throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, how come we don't have any money? Sure. Uh, And then if you look back, though, you know, if these these projects weren't done, say, you know, doing roads, um, that's going to fall back onto the local municipality. So, you know, it's one of those catch 22s. Do you want to. Pay less up to Hartford and not have anything back and then have your own property taxes being raised to be able to support that. So you have to weigh in those different viewpoints. I guess just building off that, there's within the context of, you know, this is more acutely felt in like Ansonian Derby uh, with respect to school funding uh, being the schools being funded essentially by local property taxes. There's been some talk of, you know, the need to reform that issue that system statewide uh you know do you have a position on that have you looked at it enough to have a position like what, what do you think about that whole uh problem because obviously it's coming to a head now with the judge ruling that the state doesn't do a, a, a fair job essentially uh comparing the the suburban districts to inner city districts uh you know where do you think that's going yeah, well, you know, we, the um, ruling did come down, and we're supposed to act on that immediately. Um, I think it's not going to happen as quickly as it's supposed to happen because there's too much work to be done on that. Uh, we need to make sure that we are funding the schools um, equally. You know, some some areas actually got more money, and, and we're talking – I don't want to name the towns because I can't think of the top of my head, but they um, – they're getting much more than other towns are. And we know the cost of what it costs to educate children. When you said that, you know, some people say, well, I don't have kids in the school system. Why am I paying for that? 
Well, I think we all benefit when we educate our society. Um, so that ruling, you know, we'll be working and looking at and seeing what we can do. Um, and that's just coming down the road. Okay. And as we, did you have another question? No. As we wrap up, is there anything that you specifically wanted to, to mention that we didn't touch upon uh, as we went back and forth? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think like you were talking, you know, the budget's always a big issue. Um, it, it's not an easy one. Um, I think everyone needs to know that I do put my heart and soul into it and do my research. You know, just my own local property taxes in Seymour, you know, the mill rate's gone up about seven mills in the last five years. Um, that translates to me. I have a small cape, one bathroom in case anybody wants to know. And I, my, my tax has been going up $100 a year. So taxes are going to go up locally. They're going to go up, you know, every everywhere. But we want to make sure that we're getting the best bang for our buck. Um, I'm committed into making sure that we're going to be fighting this op- opioid epidemic. Manufacturing is a priority for me. Um, you might be aware that CBIA has targeted my seat. Yes, and that's the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. Yes, has they Has endorsed did. Your, cat, uh, your opponent. Exactly. And this is the first time that they're ever coming out endorsing anyone. Um, but I have to tell you, the manufacturers have been out in droves about me. And they're writing letters. They've contacted CBIA saying, pretty much, how dare you target Teresa Conroy? She's the only, not the only one. They like to say that there's a few of us Democrats that are the champions out there for them. And I'm one of them. So um, CBIA, I think, unfairly targeted me. Um, I've been endorsed by many, many. Um, you know, we, you talk to the teachers um, union, you know, both, you know, AFL-CIO, and then you can go to any professional organizations. So the social workers or the college professors, people know me in Hartford as someone that listens, and then I respond, and I bring people to the table to come up with a consensus. A lot of times, you know, when I first got there, I thought, I can do this. And then you find out you can't have it all. And I've learned how to negotiate, which was probably the um, biggest skill set that I needed to learn on uh, was how to negotiate and do it successfully so that we keep uh, moving forward in this state. So um, I think that's probably the biggest part of me. I'm just passionate about this job and I just can't wait back to get back down there to do more work. All right. Well, Representative Conroy, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day uh, to come in here and to talk to Ethan and I. We really appreciate it because our goal is, is local news and to, and to spread public information. And even though uh, we don't cover state politics per se, mm-hmm. we think it is important to uh, give the candidates a forum unfiltered where you can just uh, talk to the people. So we really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thank you. All right. I'm uh, Eugene Driscoll for Ethan Fry, and you've just heard another episode of Valley Navel Gazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm.